Hello, everyone. Welcome to Level Up Your Faith podcast. I'm your host, Eric Philpott, and today my guest is Rick Brinegar. He uh, is a writer for End Time Magazine and has been doing that since his, what he calls, an early retirement in 2008. Uh, he comes from uh, Los Angeles and is currently living uh, in Fort Worth with his son, daughter, and his four beautiful grandchildren. And he attends Cross Life Family Worship in McKinney, Texas. Rick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be with you. Broadcasting, Amen. webcasting live from Fort Worth. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, I'm very excited about the topic today because it's centering on prophecy. And we've got a lot that's going on in the world today. I love taking God's word and placing it as a lens over the events that are taking place, showing that not only the accuracy of God's word, but also that he's returning. And I'm excited about that. Uh, before we get started, would you uh, kindly share with the listeners uh, a little about uh, how you got into prophecy and how you got into writing for End Time Magazine? Uh, it's, it's actually very intriguing to be able to do well, that. Well, a friend, was our, a friend of ours was working at End Time Ministries in uh, Plano, Texas, and uh, the call went out for writers. They were looking for a writer that could write like Irvin Baxter, the founder of End Time Ministries. And I submitted some things, and they decided, this is pretty good. So they gave me an assignment. The first article I wrote had to do with the global transaction tax. Ah. They liked it. So they made me a contributing writer. Amen. Amen. And how long have you, have you been writing for End Time Magazine? Uh, since about... 2009, I think. 2009. Amen. I had the opportunity to, uh, uh, when I was in school for, uh, in seminary, uh, it was um, Chuck Missler uh, taught several of our classes, and that's got me fascinated with prophecy. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, what's going on? I know that we're going to be talking about uh, Iran today and what's going on there. So this is a very special uh, broadcast uh, talking about things that are happening and things to come. And I want to turn this over to you. I know that you've got a, a PowerPoint uh, presentation for us. And uh, as we go, what I'll do is uh, we can pause at times. I'll politely uh, interrupt to interject and uh, maybe comment on a few things or ask questions around what you're, what you're saying to gain clarity. Is that good? That's fine. Amen. Amen. What I've done is I've selected four of the major prophecies that are in the news right now. Uh, or the four that are most prominent in the news right now uh, that have to happen during the final seven years before the second coming of Jesus. And the reason we study prophecy in the first place, is it can't be ignored because it's about one-third of the Bible. Mm. And Jesus said, now I've told you before it come to pass that when it come to pass, you might believe. So you see, it's a faith builder. Amen. That's very Here exciting. Here we go with the four of the major prophecies, anyway, of the final seven years. Begin with World War III, also called, also known as 
the Sixth Trumpet War, and the Euphrates River War. Both those references are here in uh, Revelation chapter 9. And the sixth angel sounded. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, loose the four angels, which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year. Here's a view of the river Euphrates. And apparently from this verse, there's some things that are hard to understand. Some things are easy to understand. The angels were bound in the Euphrates River, which flows through Turkey, Syria, and Iraq, empties into the Persian Gulf. And when they're loose, they're going to carry out a demonic assignment to destroy a third of mankind. Out of the chaos that results from all those people dying, a, uh, a world leader, a tyrannical world dictator, dictator will arise and he'll he'll promise peace and security but he'll also demand complete obedience here's one of the recent articles the u.s and iran are marching toward war can they find a solution before it's too late With each passing day the united states and iran draw each other in a deeper conflict but the likelihood of an armed conflict increases with every additional provocation. May I add, or at least ask, you know, with, with the issues that we have with Iran right now uh, in the Gulf of Hormuz, we also have this uh, uh, trade war that's, that's underway now with China. Right. And then from what I understand from reading uh, just recently, we have pulled away from the nuclear arms treaty with Russia as well, so that, from what I understand, we can test some new missile systems. Um, I mean, this is, this is a big deal. Right, and what we want to pay attention to is trigger points or provocations. Um, what's going right now in the Gulf is, is the kind of stuff the wars are made of. And uh, we've got the United States and Israel versus practically everybody else lining up. I see that. Please continue. Um, some of the headlines. The U.S. has sent bombers, an aircraft carrier strike group, that's including B-52s, which are nuclear capable, and more to the Middle East in response to the escalating crisis, prompting the Iranian government to issue warnings about the consequences of an attack. Trump says he called off an Iran strike 10 minutes before it was supposed to happen because he was told 150 people would die. So picture him in his war room, wherever that is, with his advisors all around. And in a sense, he's got his finger on the button. My, my. Um, ready to launch, launch, launch a retaliatory attack on, on the capabilities of Iran. And he asked one of his advisors, don't know who, how many people do you think would die if I did this? And they said about 150. So this was in response to the downing of an American drone by, by Iran. And he thought, well, let's see, we've lost a drone. Does that warrant killing 150 people, and 10 minutes before he 
he launched, he decided to not do it. Wow. You know, with Never war, read. so many more people die than 150, but 150 people is a lot of folks. Uh, I'm glad that that was uh, staved off, at least for now. See, what we're counting on is, is people to be cool-tempered. And the problem is people aren't cool-tempered. Mm. That's how the other wars started. Trump and Iran may be on the brink of war that would last, that would likely be devastating to both sides. So here's, here's the trigger point. It's the Strait of Hormuz uh, connecting the Persian Gulf to the Gulf of Oman. It's only about 33 kilometers or 21 miles wide at its narrowest point. And it's widely regarded as the most strategically important passage for, uh, for the passage of crude oil as it goes through the Gulf. Yes. There it is, the Strait of Hormuz. It's the only sea passage from the Persian Gulf to the Arabian Sea, and it's, they call it a strategically important choke point. 20% of the world's crude oil goes through there. Now up in the right-hand corner is a drone. That's the United States drone that Iran shot down on June 20th, claiming it was violating Iranian airspace. Um, in response, Gibraltar and British Marines seized an Iranian oil tanker called the Grace One. A U.S. Navy vessel boxer shoots down an Iranian drone. That was on July 18th. In response, Iran seizes the British oil tanker, Siena Impero, near the Strait of Hormuz. And then Iran, uh, about the same time, Iran detained an oil tanker called Misdar that's operated by Great Britain. On July 26, just recently, Great Britain decided they're going to send a warship with every British flagged vessel that goes through the Strait of Hormuz. Mm. July 30th, Pompeo, Secretary of State Pompeo, decided the U.S. is going to maintain the Strait of Hormuz as Iran continues to reject talks. Iran says, I don't want to talk about it. August 4th, that was Sunday. Just this last Sunday, Iran claims it has seized a third oil tanker in the Gulf as tensions with the U.S. continue to rise. So, like, uh, like the elder Bush did, George H.W. Bush, in 1991, at the beginning of the Gulf War, he wanted to build a, con a consensus. He wanted to build a coalition. I think they called it a coalition of the willing. Mm. And so that's what he did. They contacted Australia. Australia was giving serious consideration to help it confront Iran in the Gulf. Britain decided to join the U.S.-led International Maritime Security Mission on August 5th. Yeah, yeah. Monday. It's just, yeah. Um, they gave it a name. They gave it a new name. It, it was the... Uh, confronting Iran in the Gulf, informally. It has a fancier sounding, a nice name. It's called the International Maritime Security Mission. Yeah. Building a coalition of the, willing call, of the willing called 
the International Maritime Security Mission. Now, this is interesting. One of, one of uh, Trump's closest advisors, John Bolton, uh, when he came on, people were, were uh, wondering, well, he's a war hawk. He's, he's going he's gonna to want to go to war. In the current state of high tensions, the hawkish elements of both the U.S. administration and the Iranian government would exploit would exploit any any provocation to to urge their respective leaders to push the button. Wow! No, Ron Bolton's called a neocon. In other words, he's a new old-fashioned conservative. He's also called an uber, an uber hawk. Now, I know, understand what the hawk means. That means he tends to want to go to war. I don't know how the uber fits in there. Yeah, it's updating it from neo neocon to ubercon. It's just uh, bringing it into uh, modern-day vernacular, I guess. Now, Trump's well aware that, that Bolton is a hawk. And he kind of chided him one day. He said, if it was up to John, we'd be in four wars by now. Wow. If we go back to a 2015 um, article, an editorial that John Bolton wrote, wrote for the New York Times is titled, now this is his name, this is his title for it, To Stop Iran's Bomb, Bomb Iran. I can picture John Bolton having the president's ear and going, uh, Donald, to, to stop Iran's bomb, bomb Iran, you know? That's the kind of input he's getting. President and Trump sounds like he came like very close. He's on both sides when he's making a decision. Sounds like he came very close just recently with the uh, 150 people. That's right. The inescapable conclusion, writes Bolton, is that Iran will not negotiate its way will not uh, negotiate away its nuclear program. Only military action can accomplish what is required, says John Bolton. Hmm. So we're praying that he won't have too much sway with the president, who has his finger poised over the button. Yes. I, you know, it gets me thinking and, and wondering, We'll just pause for a second and think about this. You know, with the uh, the U.S. dollar, um, whenever our economy, the American economy, seems to be in jeopardy or coming into uh, something questionable, especially the dollar itself, it seems like war is the answer to bring strength to the dollar. It's always, you know, being the, the world reserve currency, if people usually option to improve an economy yes yeah there's money to be made in war and uh you know we just recently uh reduced the interest rates uh stock market hasn't been doing very good since uh president bush uh, correction president trump uh, you know started the uh the tariffs across the board for china and so it almost seems that that's the answer to fix it, that it is going to happen. 
At least that's my summation of it. I believe we're going to go to war. It seems inevitable. Now, what we have to analyze, is this going to be a regional war in the Gulf, or will it be the war that expands into a nuclear conflagration that'll kill a third of mankind? Wow. Well, I know that... Continue, please. Also in the news, our antispire is a medium-range ballistic missile. Iran has reportedly test-fired a ballistic missile as tensions continue to escalate in the Gulf. The Shahab-3 missile traveled 1,000 kilometers, that's somewhere between 6 and 7 miles, but did not pose a threat to shipping or U.S. bases, according to a Pentagon official. From Jewish News Syndicate, Iran continues to surround Israel with ballistic missiles and hostile forces. Operating largely behind the scenes, the uh, Israeli Air Force has been able to protect Israel's vital security interests, roll back Iran's presence, and so far delay the outbreak of the next major war. Uh, you can see on this map that Israel is surrounded by air. See the little red part right in the middle? Yes. It doesn't show up too well because Israel's so tiny. Correct. Uh, they've got... They've got uh, you know, Hezbollah and Hamas on the borders of Lebanon and Syria. And most of the Arab states would prefer that Israel isn't there. Correct. On one end, on, on one end of the spectrum, they'd rather not be irritated by Israel. On the other end of the spectrum, they vowed to wipe Israel off the map. I remember that. Yeah, that was the... Uh then president of Iran, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Right. And Rini of Iran now says that the main goal is to get rid of Israel. Hmm. In the news, two attacks on two borders in one day. Is the Israeli Defense Force ready for war on three fronts? That's what they've been training for. They've been training to defend their tiny country from a simultaneous attack on three borders. So here, here's, the, here's the prophetic application of this about Israel being surrounded. Even though it might not be related to the Euphrates River War directly, it's in the same general region, and right. Israel's enemies are surrounding. In Luke 21, And when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Okay, that was the Euphrates River War. One of the main prophetic fulfillments that has to happen during the final seven years. Next up is Middle East Peace Agreement. The verse reference for the Middle East Peace Agreement is in Daniel 9.27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice the oblation to cease. But he is the Antichrist. We presume one week is a week of years. Correct. And it'll be a uh, it'll be uh, an agreement that lasts seven years. 
usually when you think of a peace agreement, it's a peace agreement. It doesn't have a time limit. Right. In this case, um, either, either the parties will back out of it after seven years, or it'll be predetermined that at the end of seven years, we're going to look at it again and renegotiate. Um, it talks about the covenant here, and he shall confirm the covenant. The covenant is is the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 13. He said, all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. So in other words, the arrangement with Abraham was that his people would always have a place. You know, and in uh, uh, Joshua was told what the borders were in, uh, in, in chapter one. I'm trying to uh, think exactly what it is. It's just coming to mind, but it actually tells the, the borders scripturally of what Israel is supposed to be. And it does go all the way to the Euphrates river. Right. The, the original boundaries that were, that were designated. Um, you know, and I thought of something else as we, as we think about war and the preparations, the preparations take place long before, the conflict actually manifests itself. And I remember back in 2000, I was uh, serving in the U.S. Army Infantry, and we had up to that point been training, basically kind of woodland. We, uh, you know, the uh, armored vehicles, Humvees, tanks had the camouflage colors, and we started in '99 seeing this desert tan. Everything started to get painted desert tan. Our uh, BDUs uh, would change from the from the camouflage jungle greens to this brown uh, desert. We started instead of being out in the field and doing maneuvers training for combat that is in a green environment. We started what was called mount training, which we were going into the at Fort Hood. They have a, a small city that's made there where we were taking buildings and we were learning to maneuver across the streets and cover positions and uh, doing roadblocks. And, you know, it was kind of strange at the time as I look back, so I'm thinking, how is this applicable to what we're going to be doing? And this was quite a while before Desert Shield, right? Yes, yes. It was two years before Desert Shield. And uh, I uh, ETS. Uh, got out of the, the military in uh, 2001, uh, ended up being uh, January. I did six months with the National Guard. And late that summer, uh, I was done with my service and uh, was working. And then 9-11 took place. And directly following 9-11, we went to Afghanistan. And everything that we had been training for for two years was now being implemented with precision, two years of training to do it. So the preparation, I, I know without a shadow of a doubt, uh, is underway for what we're seeing. This right, is we have to assume that the military strategists at the top know a lot more than we do. Yes, there's no doubt. There's no doubt. Please continue, Rick. There was a recent meeting of the UN Security Council where the, uh, where the conclusion uh, the head of the council said that uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict locked in a dangerous paralysis. Um, so all, all the Arab attenders of the Security Council 
paraded out their usual complaints about how Israel is uh, occupying Palestinian territory and it's mistreating the Palestinians and so on. Danny Dannon, <clears throat> the uh, Israel ambassador to the United Nations said, <clears throat> I ask all of you to reserve judgment until we publish and you read the 60 or so pages that detail what peace could look like. He's talking about the political portion of the uh, deal of the century that Trump and his people came up with. <clears throat> they already presented the economic portion uh, led by Jared Kirshner, president's son-in-law in Bahrain. They presented the economic portion to the Arab states. Palestinians wouldn't attend, wouldn't talk about it. Well, it's a, it's a $50 billion investment deal. Mm. U.S. and Arab states will invest $50 billion in, in the West Bank, and will, it will, in effect, turn it into the Singapore of the Middle East. It will be <clears throat> highly beneficial for the Palestinians, but they didn't want to talk about it. That's the economic half, or the economic portion, uh, of the deal of the century, the, the Trump devised peace agreement. Wow. John Greenblatt was there. He's the president's advisor, close friend of 20 years. <clears throat> and he said, describing the recent Peace for Prosperity workshop in Bahrain, that's the $5 billion investment, as very successful. Acknowledge that many council members are frustrated that President Donald Trump's administration has not detailed its vision for ending the Israel-Palestinian conflict. Hopefully, the president will decide soon when to release it. But in the meantime, it's time to put the tired rhetoric aside. Now, uh, the uh, the political portion of the peace agreement, <clears throat> they're already talking about that as if it's going to happen. Jared Kirshner is on another tour of, uh, of um, at least in the Arab, Arab countries, getting them to come on board, getting them to agree to it, and it hasn't even been officially released yet. It sounds like it's, there's an article in an Egyptian newspaper this morning, makes it sound like it's already, it's already gonna happen. Yeah, it's already written. It's being it's being poised for implementation. Of course, on the other side, the Palestinians won't even talk about it. The next prophecy is one of the major prophecies to, that has to happen during the final seven years before Jesus returns is the construction of the third temple. <clears throat> uh, the reference for that is Second Thessalonians, chapter two, verse four. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. The he here is most likely the Antichrist. Right. He ascends the temple mount, sets himself up to be worshipped, demands to be worshipped as both Messiah and God. And this has to happen halfway through the final seven years. Well, if he's going to sit in the tap temple halfway through the final seven years, there has to be a temple built on the Temple Mount. Yes. 
which we assume is the third temple. Um, it has to be done by halfway through the final seven years. Another verse reference, Matthew 24, when ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. The holy place most likely refers to the, uh, the place just outside the, uh, the veil in the temple that leads into the Ark of the Covenant. It's the holy place. Yes. And uh, the abomination of desolation is generally agreed to be the the appearance the uh, the antichrist demanding to be worshipped you know when we're talking about this for me when it comes to prophecy one i, I really appreciate just the, the the focus that you have on getting this information together and being so concise i go into a learner mode it's strange because a lot of times i'll talk but when i'm hearing this it's like i just absorb but one of the things that's most fascinating about this when we were in Israel a couple of months ago, uh, we were up on the Temple Mount, and my wife and I uh, have some information from an archaeologist who is doing some excavation work under the Temple Mount at this point in time. And we were kind of looking at the size of the temple, according to Scripture, there on that Temple Mount area, and we were kind of standing and, and walking it out and, and you know where the corners were. But from what I understand, there is uh, an archaeological dig that's taking place right now in March. When we go to Israel, I'm going to be able to confirm this because they're going to take us under the Temple Mount area. There's tunnels under there. But from what I understand, uh, he's making claim that they have found the foundation for Solomon's Temple. Yes. And they've already preserved it. They're working on that as being the foundation. And if I'm not mistaken, it is located between the Alaska Mosque to the south and the Dome of the Rock, which is to the north. Mm -hmm. So we've always um, assumed or presumed that the Dome of the Rock would have to be destroyed for the temple to actually be built. And I'm really looking forward to going and confirming this because everything has already been prepared. They've identified the priests. Uh, and the line of the priests from Aaron, they've already prepared all of the garments and the uh, the golden candlesticks. And they even, uh, many say that uh, that even the Ark of the Covenant has been located and secured. Um, with all of that, I mean... They're we, all ready to resume services on a moment's notice. All they need is... Um, there's also another little area that I don't... I, I personally don't have uh, accurate understanding of the red heifer. And, uh, and then ultimately, I know that the fire uh, was not supposed to be extinguished. How does that get reestablished at the altar? Uh, these are just questions. I don't know if you have any thoughts or opinions on that. Well, of course, the, uh, the priests in charge of the red heifer are, are constantly trying to develop that genetically pure red heifer. Mm. Uh, and once, every once in a while in the news, you'll see a candidate for the, for the red heifer that's not, not supposed to have a certain number of white hairs on its body, and then some white hairs will appear. But uh, they're going at it full force to develop this genetically pure red heifer, whose ashes uh, 
that, that's going to be burned and ashes mixed with the water for ritual bathing in order to enter the temple. Wow. It is, it is closer than we think. Uh, we get distracted. Uh, you'd by you'd probably be interested in this certain tunnel that was in the news. Israeli and American dignitaries unveil the pilgrimage road. Uh, this is uh, uh, David Friedman and Greenblatt and Lindsey Graham all attended the opening ceremony. They opened up a 350-yard uh, wide, 350 350-yard long portion of the pilgrimage road, which is the stone series of stone, stone steps leading from the Pool of Shiloham to the Temple Mount from 2,000 years ago. What this does is it establishes that it establishes the historical accuracy of a Jewish presence on the Temple Mount at least 2,000 years ago. And Tunnel's wow. a, a part of a major archaeological project pushed by Elad, that's a development company, which aims to settle Jews in part of East Jerusalem. East Jerusalem, part of East Jerusalem called the City of David. The tunnel's called the Pilgrimage Road. Wow. It amazes me how, like, finding this, and it's as if they just built on, you know, bring in the rubble, cover something up, and then build on top of it. Um, it is amazing. Fascinating. I lost my slide projection. Okay. Uh, well, you should be able to go uh, back to presenter mode. It's in presenter mode. And then you can start it. We're back again. There we go. <laughs> Continue, please, Rick. Visitors will be able to touch history by walking in the footsteps of ancient pilgrims through a stretch of tunnel along the ancient street that ran uphill to the Jewish temple. Now, if we go back to 2017, when President Trump first declared that Jerusalem is the eternal capital of Israel, we see this article from Breaking Israeli News. Trump's Jerusalem Declaration, enormous step towards bringing the third temple. President Donald Trump's epic proclamation on Wednesday, whenever that was, acknowledging Jerusalem as the eternal capital of the Jewish people was a major step towards establishing the third temple and bringing the messianic era. One year ago, this is one year before this certain publication date in 2017, the Sanhedrin called on Trump to build the temple as Cyrus did 2,000 year, years ago. Uh, Rabbi Weiss said, he has clearly moved in this direction, but there is still a long way to go and many pitfalls that prevent this from happening. It's being talked about. So, you beat me to the punch. I was going to, oh. I was going to ask you, <laughs> once you've been there, does it look like there's room to build the third temple between, uh, the Dome of the Rock and the Alaska Mosque. Without a, yeah, 
without a shadow of a doubt, there is. Uh, even my wife and I, just a couple of months ago, stood there from from corner to corner, uh, on 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 a at a diagonal pace to see how big it would be and fit in there, and it definitely will fit in there. And what's most intriguing about if they found this foundation, and I'm so looking forward to uh, to confirming that with my own eyes. We hear so much, and we don't have the opportunity to validate it, but it it can be built to a certain height from what I understand before you have to excavate out the ground so that it continue to come through uh, uh, through the existing floor that's there on the Temple Mount area. So, you know, I'm, that's going to be six months down the road before I get there at this point. Um, but yes, there's definitely room for it between the Alaska Mosque and, uh, and the Dome of the Rock. Maybe they will have already started construction by the time you get there. You know what's fascinating about prophecy to me is when we start connecting these dots and we start seeing them, I get an energy about the Lord's return and a passion for the souls that, that God wants to save. And, you know, I've always thought, you know, once we start seeing, for instance, the temple, when they announce that the temple is being built, every Christian should almost freak out in their spirit to win their family to Christ, to win folks that they're talking to Christ, to share and to, to, to point to this prophecy, just like you're doing now. Um, but it's, it's giving me that same energy now, even knowing that it's closer as we're talking about it today. I think that would be the main prophetic uh, confirmation that we are in the final seven years as you see the beginning of the construction of the third temple. Yes. Yeah, then it's almost just, uh, you know, it, that, that becomes the only focus at that point. When you see that trigger, I mean, and it's getting close. I think it should, we should already be in that place. You know, we're serving Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We're ambassadors here on earth from another kingdom now that we've been born again. And that should be our energy anyway. But we get so distracted with so many different things. And uh, am I going to be able to pay off my mortgage? And, you know, do I get a new car? And, and we, you know, am I going to keep my job? Uh, and, and all of that, when, when we see this being built, that almost will have no value anymore because we know that the time is short. Right. And, uh, I believe it's short anyway. But, uh, but anyway, please continue. Absolutely fantastic. Fascinating. Here's an article that Pastor Eric already answered. Can Third Temple be built without destroying the Dome of the Rock? A new Jewish interfaith initiative argues building the Third Jewish Temple in Jerusalem would not necessitate, necess, necessitate the destruction of the Dome of the Rock. Wow. Pastor Eric did an amiable job of answering that question for us with his eyewitness report. Amen. Next up, the Ten Nation Union formed. This is the uh, precursor of the Antichrist world government where the, the Antichrist will demand complete obedience and he'll seek to control the entire earth. The reference is in Revelation 17. And the ten horns, which thou sawest, are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings, one hour with the beast. 
There's an article from a Christian publication. Pathway to the Beast, Macron pushes 10-nation European army. France's Emmanuel Macron has called for a real European army to reduce dependence on the United States. And here they are, the 10 nations listed in this article, Germany, Belgium, Britain, Denmark, Estonia, the Netherlands, Spain, Portugal, Finland, and of course, France. This is showing up not only in religious publications, but in, in uh, secular news sources. Emmanuel Macron unveils European Defense Coalition, and even the secular publication is aware of the significance of the number 10. 10 countries sign up following French president's call for a real European army. Now just, um, it's two weeks ago now, at, uh, on Bastille Day, which I think was something like July 14th, Emmanuel Macron calls for Europe of defense at show of force on Bastille Day. Macron, he's not so much a French person as he is a citizen of the European Union. Everything's about the European Union with him. Emmanuel Macron presided over a show of European force at France's annual Bastille Day military parade on Sunday, calling for a Europe of defense. Alongside German Chancellor, German Chancellor Angela Merkel and leaders from the continent. Three British Chinook helicopters and a Eurofighter were among the more than 100 aircraft from, again, the number 10, 10 EU countries that flew over Paris as soldiers, police, and firefighters marched down the iconic Champs-Élysées Avenue. German, Spanish, Portuguese, and Finnish soldiers also took part. So this wasn't just Bastille Day. This is a precursor to the ten-nation empire of the, of the end times, the Antichrist, Beast, one-world system. European Commission climate Promises help clinch victory for Ursula von der Leyen. See, uh, this is the new commissioner, the new president of the European Commission. It's confusing. It's always been confusing to me. It must be confusing to other people. I sometimes think it's confusing on purpose. Right. The European Union has three presidents. There's the European Parliament president, European Council President, European Commission President. And we can put uh, Ursula's picture right in there now because she was just elected. There's Ursula, the European Commission President. Now what I've read over the years is that their duties, their spheres of jurisdiction are overlapping. And oftentimes when there's an event or an initiative or something that has to be that the leader of the European Union has to take action on, they'll call each other and, and say, who's supposed to be doing this? You want to take this one? <laughs> They're confused uh, yeah. themselves. Hot potato. <laughs> European Commission, climate promises help clinch victory for Ursula von der Leyen. 
Now, she was elected to the position of European Commission president because she promised she'd take decisive, forceful action on climate change. Promising increased climate action. Hmm. Climate change activists have uh, claimed that because of global warming, um, man-induced global warming, mankind is careening toward the deaths of billions of people, uh, eradication of millions of species, collapse of civilization, and they, you know, they claim that man-made climate change is to blame for storms, war, nuclear exchange, epidemics. But before we climb on the global warming climate change bandwagon, I think we'd do well to look at this interview by Mark Levine of Dr. Patrick Michaels on the truth about global warming. On an October 2018 interview with Dr. Mark Patrick Michaels, director of the Center for Study of Science at the Cato Institute, he highlighted some of the major issues of the climate change controversy, including the reliability of computer climate models to predict surface air temperature. He concluded in this interview that the surface temperature of the earth today is about nine-tenths of one degree. Nine-tenths of one degree, Pastor Eric, isn't very much. No, not at all. Uh, the surface temperature of the earth increased nine-tenths of one degree over 100 years. It sounds like a bad problem that we're going to run into with all that uh, heat being generated from the uh, <laughs> one-tenth of one degree. <laughs> and he also concluded that only half of that nine-tenths of a degree temperature increase might possibly be caused by greenhouse gases produced by humans. So what we see going on is that it's a convenient global problem that requires a global solution. In other words, a global government. Continuing in this uh, interview, Dr. Michaels asserted that according to the government-sponsored computer models used by the United Nations, if we compare projections of warming to actual observed temperatures, the climate's nowhere nearly as, more, as warm as it's supposed to be. And here's what this uh, Cato Institute scientists concluded. Government-sponsored climate models are parameterized. That is, they are fudged according to what we think they should be. This is very interesting. And this information is available for anybody to look at if they're searching out truth. Uh, there's so much available to us today. Sadly, when it comes to what they call climate change now, it used to be global warming, but then in certain areas it got cooler, so that didn't make any sense to call it that anymore, so they changed to global climate change. And then the models, I mean, there was a big deal. I think it was just either earlier this year or late last year on the models being skewed. 
and and fudged to make it look like it was worse. It was kind of like the worst case scenario according to our models and the emails that were passed back and forth and the reasons behind why they were doing it. Ultimately, they're wanting to, as far as I can tell, is they're wanting to add a new tax, which is this carbon credits to supposedly curve the use of, uh, uh, or the, I don't know how you're gonna say, I, mean, I heard an article that talked about cow flatulence as being one of the leading contributors to, to the global climate change. <laughs> And it's uh, it's amazing. But they attribute they attributed everything bad to climate change. Sure. Yeah, I, I stubbed my toe this morning because of climate change. All right. Let's look at this other recent article. New Finnish study finds human activity has minor influence on global temperature change. A Finnish study done by researchers at the University of Turku found that mankind only accounts for a minute portion of the global temperature change over the past 100 years. Hmm. The IPCC, uh, Panel on Climate Change, said that climate sensitivity is about one order of magnitude, that is 10 times too high because a strong negative feedback of the clouds is missing in climate models. And the Finnish study concluded, now get this, Anthropogenic climate change, that is, that yeah, is you. Is a problem such as the climate change crisis that it requires a global solution. Major prophetic fulfillments that I've selected just from my point of view. We're going to stop this for a second. Well, prominently recently. Can you hear me? More we could talk about. There's uh, uh, the rise of the Antichrist, the image of the beast, the mark of the beast, uh, the false prophet and his world government. Well, maybe we'll save that for another time. Uh, well, the reason I stopped, I lost internet connection for a brief moment when you were talking about the uh, anthro uh, ge genetic. I didn't even know anthropomorphic. Yes, yes, it, it it messed up, lost connection, and I just came back in. So, if we could back it up to that slide, I can. I'm going to edit this section out. Okay. But the word anthropomorphic. Anthro, Anthro anthropogenic. Anthropogenic, yes. There we go. When you when you were mentioning that, it, it jibber jabbered. So if you will Okay. A finished study done by researchers at the University of Turku found that mankind only accounts for a minute portion of the global temperature change over the past one hundred years. Human activity has minor influence on global temperature change. The IPCC says the climate sensitivity is about one order of magnitude, 10 times too high because a strong negative feedback of the clouds is missing on climate models. All of the government, government sponsored climate models conveniently leave out 
other factors, other factors other than carbon dioxide emissions. They leave out cloud cover, they leave out ocean currents and the ocean, ocean temperature. They leave out the sun. The sun's probably the major contributor to warming. Uh, the, the sun doesn't always have the same out, output. It changes. Very interesting. So, so their conclusion was that anthropogenic or man-made, man-induced, uh, human-caused climate change does not exist in practice. <laughs> and so now the, the statement that you just read, who made that statement? Was that a secular? Uh, that's a that's Finnish scientist, climate okay. scientist in Finland. Amazing. Anthropogenic climate change does not exist in practice. So they conveniently came up with a global, the globalists did, they came up with a global problem that needs a global solution. Yes. Be a problem that's big enough, a problem that's big enough would be the climate change crisis, big enough that it requires a global solution and a totalitarian world dictatorship will come to the rescue. Yes, create the problem that everybody clamors for a response, somebody help us, and then they have a solution. Uh, so problem, reaction, solution. Right. It's classic. I mean, everybody knows about it, but they don't see it on this scale for some reason. Now, uh, other things we could be talking about are the false prophet, the one world religion, the image of the beast, the rise of the Antichrist, the mark of the beast. Maybe we'll do that another time. Yes, this, uh, this can actually, we can go deep into this. I want to continue this conversation with you and, and pick up on this. Now, what I love about today is that you're taking current events and it's laying the foundation right now, uh, August 6th. These are things that are leading up even to this past uh, Sunday and even yesterday. Um, and, and we're seeing these things unfold around us. I was very interested in seeing uh, what President Trump did with China. You know, there's a lot of, uh, there was a lot of positive uh, thoughts around this trade agreement and trade deal that would work out with China and all of a sudden they didn't buy some agricultural products like they had promised. And then it went from 25% taxation on some of their items, China that is, to 10% of everything and still 25% here. And then they were, I think just yesterday, were accused of uh, currency manipulation. China was accused by the U.S. of currency manipulation uh, because the yuan dropped seven to one against the dollar, and uh, and I, I saw an article this morning. I didn't finish reading it. I would have liked to, but that's going to cause a problem. In the meantime, with Russia, these are considered superpowers. Obviously, we are the ultimate superpower, at least as it stands. Um, we pull out of the uh, the uh, nuclear treaty agreement. Um, uh, with them, and then we have this huge issue that's taking place with Iran, uh, who is nuclear capable, 
Meanwhile, we're making friends with North Korea and walking on their soil for the first time. <laughs> and, and President Trump is, is a deal maker uh, without a shadow of a doubt. And he has a strong arm and uh, doesn't need a very strong finger over the button right now. You know, I've, I've always, I was very thankful when President uh, Trump came into office. I was really hoping that, uh, that it was going to make some significant changes in the direction of our country. Um, but he was certainly saying the right things when he got elected. He, he did. He did say, he did say the right things. Um, but, you know, it becomes the, the lesser of two evils. I, I, I don't believe that it's going to matter who gets into office. I think when it comes to the antichrist, and we will talk about this on another segment, but, uh, but do you have any thoughts uh, about who's being groomed as the Antichrist? Is it possible that it could be? Um, one in the news, most prominent in the news recently, would be Francis Macron. Mm. Because he's such an uh, uh, advocate of uh, the the emergence of the European Union as the main world power. Mm. Yeah, I've, I've spent so much time uh, lately focusing on uh, discipleship and, and basically leading the charge to win souls that I have not spent as much time as I'd like in prophecy. Um, and I'm well, glad that we did today. There are definitely, definitely Terrible times ahead, and the stage is being set. Things are being put into place for the reign of the Antichrist. And uh, it's good to inform Christians about this, what to look for, because it says in Daniel that uh, those who have understanding among the people will instruct many. Terrible yeah. times ahead. People will be running around waving their arms in the air going... What is going on? We're all going to die. And informed Christians will be able to explain the times to them. Wow. Well, it sounds like we're very close to that. I thought it was interesting in, in the uh, End Times magazine, uh, July, August edition. So this is either the most recent, if I don't have a current copy, but you wrote an article in there that was, uh, it's, it's titled, uh, doorstep to global nuclear war. Mm -hmm. And this is very prophetic. I mean, we're putting together some of the dots today, but in this article, you're putting together uh, the dots that you're talking about now when you're talking about nuclear war. And then all of a sudden, just in the past five or six days, after you wrote this article, uh, in, in fulfillment of my article, yes. in fulfillment of your article, uh, you know, uh, this issue with Russia has now presented itself. And so technically, we are back to the Cold War, uh, Cold War status yeah. with Russia as far as the nuclear talks. Uh -huh. That is... Amazing. So when I saw that, I thought of this article uh, immediately, and I was like, <laughs> mm -hmm. this is the importance of prophecy, because this is from the Word of God, which 
I believe to be inerrant and infallible. Uh, it is very steadfast and steady, and it is a foundation that you can stand on, prophesy these things, and we're seeing them come to fruition right now. Yes. Eyes. And, uh, and it gives me a lot of energy. I hate the fact that there's going to be destruction. I hate yes. the fact that there's times ahead. Yeah. But you have to, you have to uh -huh. add phrase in there, terrible times ahead. Nevertheless, God. Amen. I love it. This verse is appropriate here in John 16. I'll let you read that to conclude things. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And Jesus has done that for us. He defeated death, hell, and the grave so that we can have eternal life through his name. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Rick, I want to thank you for your time today. This has been absolutely fascinating. We are going to have another podcast and talk about uh, the Antichrist, uh, the temple, uh, the prophet. And uh, in our next segment, I do want to inform uh, the listeners that uh, Rick Brenniger, uh, being a contributor to uh, End Time Magazines, you can find that at endtime.com. Uh, if you'd like to get an electronic copy, uh, I'm still a little old school. I do use technology, but I like paper. I like being able to sit down and turning pages uh, so you can get a subscription as well there. If you're interested in any of our other podcasts, you can go to iTunes to level up your faith. And you can also find us on uh, philpotministries.org. Uh, that is our YouTube channel. Rick, it's been a great pleasure having you today. Is there any final thought that you'd like to share with the listeners? Well, it's good to be with you. I'm glad I can be part of a ministry and part of a congregation that thinks that end time events are significant and that we need to understand what's going on in the world around us. Amen. <laughs> well, God bless you, warriors of valor in Christ Jesus. Fight the good fight of faith. Until we talk again, have a fantastic time serving Jesus. Thanks.